The following podcast is brought to you by the Santa Monica College Associates, the SMC Associates, enhancing student excellence. Good morning. Okay. I'm Sherry Bradford. Once again, I'm from the Black Legions program here on the campus, um, and I have been given the great pleasure of introducing our guest speaker for today. I'm so excited that she's here, and I just wanted to tell you a little bit about her background, which she has a tremendous background, but I'll try and touch on some of the things that make her extra special for us. So our speaker, Dr. Antoinette Yancey, is currently a professor in the Department of Health Services at UCLA School of Public Health, and she's co-director of the UCLA Kaiser Permanente Center for Health Equity. Tony Yancey um, has been interested primarily in researching chronic disease prevention with a focus on organizational practice and policy change, as well as adolescent health promotion. Just a little bit about her educational background that I thought was interesting. Um, Dr. Yancey completed her undergraduate studies in biochemistry and molecular biology at Northwestern University. And by the way, she was the starting center on the varsity basketball team during that time. Hello. <laughs> she received her medical degree at Duke and her preventive, preventative medicine residency and master's in public health at UCLA. For those of you out there, I know in Black Collegians we are into spoken word. For those of you who are into, into spoken word and poetry, she is also one of you. Um, she has a handle on both sides of the brain as she is a, a poet and a spoken word artist who also happens to be published in public health journals, preventive medicine, and the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, and in several newspapers. Her first book, a combination of poetry and art, entitled An Old Soul with a Young Spirit, Poetry in the Era of Desegregation Recovery was published in 1997 and sold out in its first printing in 2000. Her spoken word music CD, Renaissance Woman, Race Woman, was released in 2001. Since 2006, Dr. Yancey has been a public health commentator for the local NPR affiliate KPCC. We all know that very well. Her second book, Instant Recess, How to Build a Fit Nation for the 21st Century, was released in November 2010, and I hope you guys get access to that book because um, she's amazing and we need to understand more about health issues, especially in underrepresented communities. One of the most exciting accomplishments in recent years has been her appointment to the Board of Directors of Partnership for a Healthier America, which is a nonprofit program guiding and supporting Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative. There's a picture of her on the Internet sitting at the table with Michelle Obama. How many people do you know get that opportunity? So kudos to you. And then on a very personal note, um, she and her wonderful partner, Darlene Edgley, who is a former Black Collegian student, um, created a special scholarship specifically for Black Collegian students in the name of her family members. And at this point, they have donated nearly $20,000 in scholarships to our students. I think that deserves a round of applause. Tony has such a beautiful spirit, and the students who have interacted with her at our yearly annual ceremony at the um, end of the year have commented on how down-to-earth she is, um, and she is just amazing in her accomplishments. She's always a giver, and it's with great uh, pleasure that she gives again today to Santa Monica College, this time in sharing her knowledge with us. And it is with sincere pleasure that we welcome Dr. Antoinette Yancey to Santa Monica College. 
Um, it's really delightful to be with you all today. And indeed, um, when I got the call from the University of California Press, which published Instant Recess, um, that this event was uh, something they were inviting me to, I immediately snapped it up because uh, Santa Monica College is special to me for a, a number of reasons. Um, I come from a long line of educators. My aunt, Tony, that I'm named after, was the first director of adult basic education in the Kansas City, Missouri schools. And um, for a black woman to do that at that time in the late 60s was, you know, pretty, pretty amazing accomplishment. So I have big shoes to, to try to fill and walk in. Um, but that idea that um, as a co-director for the UCLA Kaiser Permanente Center for Health Equity, um, if we want to have health equity, we need educational equity, okay? And if we are going to have educational equity, we need health equity. So these two things are really joined at the hip, if you will. And um, for me, uh, choosing to sort of be a part of this Santa Monica College community is very important also because of my partner, Darlene Edgley, who about seven or so years ago, maybe eight, I sat out at the little out, outdoor auditorium and watched her win a math award when she was a student here. Um, you know, just sort of getting her academic legs under her and, you know, the, the fact that so many people who look like her walked across that stage and said, I'm going to UC Berkeley, I'm going to Stanford, I'm going to, you know, Brown, whatever. I mean, it meant a whole lot. That role modeling meant a whole lot. And I think that's partly um, why she's where she is today, finishing her master's degree at UCLA in women's studies. So I think she deserves a round of applause. So moving along, um, I want to tell you a little bit about Instant Recess today and um, what, what this movement that I'm trying to create is all about. Um, now I say I, but really there's a, a capital W, capital E, we in this, and you'll see a little bit more about that as we go along. Um, we have a big challenge right now, and a part of that challenge is that people are very much uh, integral to an environment that has had all the physical activity, all the need to move around engineered out of it. Now, to some extent, you're protected on a college campus because you still can only park so far. You know, we got to park pretty close today, but that's unusual, you know. So when you're a student and, you know, even for faculty, you're, you're able to move around a little bit more, but still it's not enough when you think about how much activity we used to expend. So, so we've got a challenge in that the average adult, um, and maybe you need to, yeah. Um, the average adult gets about eight minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity a day. Eight minutes. How many minutes does the American College of Sports Medicine and the Centers for Disease Control recommend that people get every day? 30 minutes a day, absolutely. 30 minutes a day on how many days a week? At least five, five or more days a week. And what level of intensity? High. <laughs> moderate to vigorous, moderate intensity defined as walking at a three to four mile an hour pace. So in a half an hour, if you can walk a mile and a half to two miles, that's a brisk walk, that's a moderate intensity kind of movement. And um, so this idea that the average American adult is getting so little now, and part of it is that we didn't have to go out of our way for physical activity uh, historically. Human beings have been on the planet for a million years. 
and it's only been in the last 30 or 40 that we haven't had to expend a lot of energy just to survive, okay, to eat, to find shelter, escape predators, historically, you know. I mean, we, we've had a lot of activity that was just built in. So we didn't need a biological drive to help us get physical activity. As a matter of fact, we needed a biological drive to help us find food because most of us would have starved to death without that hunger driving us to risk the, you know, contact with predators and, you know, falling off of cliffs and all that kind of thing just to, to make it. So, so we're, we're really in a very unique time, and our, um, our evolutionary biology has not caught up with, with the time period that we live in. Um, when you translate the activity that people get into how many actually meet recommendations, the 30 minutes a day, five or more days a week, less than 5% of adults, specifically 2.6% of women and 3.6% of men. Now, that's when we measure it with these little accelerometers, okay? You ask people how many, how many meet these guidelines or how much activity do you get. What proportion of people say that they're meeting the guidelines? A lot more, right? Try an order of magnitude off. So it's like 50-plus percent that say they're meeting guidelines. Okay, so we think that we're doing a lot, but we're actually not doing a lot. And, you know, what's really tragic is that our kids aren't doing a lot because we're not doing a lot. Um, now, here's the other part of the equation that I think some people miss out on. And um, in a, a lot of times people say, well, why don't people just get out and walk? People should just get out and move more. Oh, yeah, people have just gotten to be slugs. They're fat and lazy. Well, if you look at this data, there are no fewer people that are going out in their spare time and hitting a tennis ball or playing basketball or any of that than there ever were. That hasn't changed. That's the same. Okay? So the issue is not that people are doing less leisure time activity. The, the problem is that our overall levels of physical activity in our lives have plummeted. And here's the issue. Okay? Prolonged sitting, um, which 95% of us <laughs> engage in, you know, given how sedentary we are. And a lot of bad things happen when we sit for long periods. You know, you shut down the electrical activity in the leg muscles. You drop off your calorie burning to almost nothing. Um, drop fat, fat burning enzyme levels. And your good cholesterol, the HDL, high density lipoprotein kind of cholesterol, also drops along with your effectiveness of your insulin. So people that don't have diabetes, Still, you know, we're all, you know, managing our blood sugar, and that's a problem. When people do have diabetes, it's even more of a problem. So what, what I've been thinking about, what my career has kind of come to focus on over the last decade or so, um, about um, uh, 15 years ago, I was a director of public health for the city of Richmond, Virginia. So I had been in academia before that at UCLA when I finished my preventive medicine residency, but I wanted to get that practice experience. So um, I took that job, and because, you know, it's a relatively small city, like 200,000 people, you know, I could send fitness instructors out all over the city to lead classes, you know, offer free instruction, civic organizations, clinics, churches, whatever. That was great. But when I came back, when I was recruited to start a chronic disease prevention and health promotion program here in L.A. County, um, I didn't quite have the same capacity that I had in Richmond. There were 10 million people here, and they didn't give me that dollar per head that I had in Richmond. I mean, I had $200,000 in Richmond, a dollar per head. 
You don't think they gave me $10 million to just do chronic disease in LA County? No, not even close. So we had to figure out a different, a different scheme. And you know, keep in mind that in 99, which is when I took that job, I mean, there was no such thing as going viral or you know, any of the social media stuff. But, but my team and I, we had this concept of you know, something that could become kind of like a multiplier effect. So if one person does it, other people see that, they, you know, these, this group models it, the other people can pick it up. And so we started producing these DVDs and CDs so that people could actually, you know, it could, it's something that could spread without direct service input because we didn't have very much, you know, very many resources to um, deal with an entire county. So push versus pull, most of the times we promoted physical activity by in inviting people. You know, hey, uh, come over here during your lunch time. Come take this exercise class or do this walk. Uh, go use this fitness facility. Um, we'll give you a gym membership subsidy. But the reality is that that's not working. Okay, if it was working, then we wouldn't have these desperately low levels of activity. So what, what I'm advocating for in my book is push strategies how we make the active choice the default option, how we make it something that is basically the path of least resistance so that people don't have to go out of their way for it. Because historically, evolutionarily, we didn't go out of our way for physical activity. It was something that we had to do. And I don't, at the same time, I'm not looking to make something, you know, like pulling teeth. I don't want it to be like another obligation. So. We also, when we were thinking about it, how do we make something fun? How do we create something that is going to be something people look forward to and really is going to help tap into the captive audiences that we already have? So if we don't want people to go out of their way, then we need to look at work sites. Okay, That's where most people spend most of their time, and students spend most of their time in schools. So um, we know that for ethnic uh, minority groups and low-income individuals with multiple jobs, long commutes, because it's very expensive to live in LA proper, in Santa Monica especially, um, uh, people that are often single parents, you know, juggling kids, a lot of responsibilities for their children. I mean, these are all things that make it a real challenge to um, find the time and to be able to do what what we want them to do. And I. I one, one of the things that happened with my book is that, um, as uh, Sherry was uh, uh, so kind in mentioning, I, I, I write a little poetry, and I, I tend to write that poetry, you know, in the wee hours in the morning or, you know, whatever, when I'm not sleeping too well, trying to figure out what we need to be doing. But um, I wrote this poem called Ain't Like There's Hunger. It was one of, the, one of those that was published. It was actually my first commission poem. And when I was writing the book, the UC Press kept urging me, you know, don't make it such an academic book. We think this could have crossover appeal. Write it for more like the NPR kind of audience. So, you know, gradually with the help of John Raby, who I do the uh, commentaries for for Off Ramp on KPCC, you know, I started to make it a little bit more lay friendly. And that kind of drew my poetry into the book. So seven of my poems are actually in the book, which at, at a certain point in time they said, well, we don't think we want the poems anymore. And I was like, eh. Too late. <laughs> so this poem is called Ain't Like There's Hunger. Sweet tooth, salt tooth, chocolate tooth, Jones and for fries, triple deck mac, coke and pork rinds, 
but no walking tooth, swimming tooth, stretching tooth, dancing tooth, weightlifting tooth. After all, ain't like this hunger. Mind numbing early gig. Second gig even worse. Kids in between got to be fed, read to, homework checked, ears inspected, dark park, cold out. After all, ain't like this hunger. Sitting all day, trying to look nice, do costing $30, $40 a week, heels and hugging skirt, and this 50 extra pounds I'm carrying around. Stairs are a joke, walking at lunch, humidity wrecked my hair. After all, ain't like this hunger. TV and radio ads for the Mickey D's, KFC's, Taco Bell's, Krispy Kreme's, and Windshells. Seeing me, my kind of folk. Hearing me, my kind of folk. Golden arches, right round the corner, open late, open early, open 24-7. And then there's hunger. CEOs making all this money, making us fat and old and sick and dead. Fat bankrolls, fat, P-H-A-T, money. Blood money's what it really is. Expanding bottom lines, expanding our behinds and waistlines, because after all, ain't like there's real hunger. So being a nation of couch potatoes, or mouse potatoes, is really that bad? Why don't they make it easy? Perk me up, since I'm usually down where I work, on the company's clock. Yeah. How about a little recess like when we were kids in school? I might take a stroll on their time or find some jamming tunes for my little group. Packing some extra pounds, been a while since we got down. Shifting and moving and swinging and grooving. Get that natural high flowing. Now that might make me hungry for more. So, you know, one of the things that we have to do when we want to um, make something happen, we're really trying to drive change, you know, what we want, okay, as a preventive medicine specialist, I want people to be healthier, but, you know, a corporation or a school, they may not be hearing that so much, you know, about just, like, we want your employees to be healthier, so we need to speak to their bottom line. And the bottom line for a lot of companies is medical cost, um, absenteeism, Productivity. So these are the kinds of terms that we have to talk in, just like when we're talking to schools, we need to talk in terms of academic performance. Um, absenteeism is a problem there, too, a bottom line issue there, too. Uh, discipline, you know, um, preventing, you know, a, uh, unnecessary trips to the uh, vice principal. So um, in, 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 in that spirit, um, this is data from a study that was done at a large corporation in the Midwest, finding that moderately active and active and very active employees who um, had actually fewer health care costs, had lower spending than did um, employees that were not active, whether or not they were obese. So in other words, we don't have great ways of helping people lose weight. And I think we spend too much time talking about obesity and stigmatizing obesity. Okay, the reality is that obesity is more of a marker in our society for um, what your environment looks like you know, where, where you live and to some extent where you work, okay? What kind of restaurants you have access to, whether you have park space, whether you have that gorgeous body of water, you know, two feet from your door. So, so people that at least are moderately or mildly obese um, can, can wipe out some of the negative consequences of that from a health standpoint by being more active.
And the other piece of this in terms of work sites is that um, we really have to take advantage of the opportunity for spillover. So if we have somebody who's in a captive audience setting and they're doing brief bouts of activity at the workplace and then they go home, maybe they're more likely to walk the dog. Maybe they're more likely to be more active with the kids. Um, maybe they're more likely to take mass transit. So, so again, there are a lot of things that we would like to see happen as a society to really embed um, an active lifestyle into what we do, but we're a long way from that. So we, we have a, a lot of changes that we need to make, and I argue that we need to start with the socio-cultural environment, that that's kind of um, the sweet spot for making some change happen. Um, I'm not going to go into great detail with this, but this is just to show that there are lots of benefits to the workplace as well as to the individual for implementing these short bouts of physical activity like improved energy and mood and concentration. Um, how many people have worked out hard sometime in the last five years, you know, sweated? Now, when you got done with that, did you want to drink soda or water? <laughs> there you go. See, that's the thing. Part of the reason we have such a hard time promoting fruits and vegetables and water and these other foods is because we don't get enough activity. Okay, your body hungers and thirsts for water, and fruits are very high in water. Fruits and vegetables are high in water when you've had activity. There's a, 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 an intervention in schools called recess before lunch, where if you get the kids moving before you feed them the lunch, there's less plate waste. They don't throw away the vegetables and fruit as much. So again, we've got to get this thing working together. I promote in my interventions nutrition as well as physical activity, but the missing part, the part that's really, really under, uh, is, is not emphasized sufficiently, is the physical activity part. And active school days. I mean, you know, we can get kids moving during the school day. We certainly need to make PE more, more active. And we actually have done some studies that I talk about in the book where, um, we looked at California as a whole to see um, how much activity are kids getting during PE class. Now, in a 30-minute PE class, 30 minutes, how many minutes do you think that we found, on average, kids were actually moving? You all are very good. About about three to five minutes in the in the under in the in the pub, we're talking public schools now many of them in underserved areas. Now, the more affluent schools where, say, only 25% of kids qualified for free and reduced price lunches, you saw slightly higher levels of activity. Maybe they were up to, say, 13, 14 minutes of activity during that 30-minute session. But the schools we're most concerned about as public health folks, we're talking that three to five minutes that you all just brought up. So we need to get kids more active during PE, but that's hard right now. Um, it's hard because we have um, all of these budget cutbacks. We're in trouble as a country. We're in trouble as a state. I'm actually working right now with Superintendent Tom Torlakson, um, co-chairing his Team California for Healthy Kids with Bill Walton, Bubba Paris, and Dean Carnassus. And one of the reasons that he's really embracing this concept of, of instant recess, activity breaks for the kids, is because there's no money to hire more PE teachers. And even if there was, we haven't trained enough. So instant recess, 
the, the intervention, what we're really talking about, and I mean, you know, in the book I'm talking about really the broad perspective on physical activity. It's really more like the physical activity of food, the, the um, food politics kind of a physical activity. Food politics was a book that by Marian Nessel, who's a nutrition professor at Columbia, who um, also published a book by UC Press. But um, instant recess specifically is like a part of the solution. It's not so much that I think that 10 minutes a day is going to make all the difference in the world, although I've already showed you the data. So 10 minutes could double or triple some people's activity levels. But what I do see is that we've got to get the change going. We've got to start it off in the right direction. And this is a way to start. This is a way that just about anybody can get in the game and start to make um, some progress. So the, bre the, the movements are simple, they're easily replicable, they're low impact, moderate intensity, set to music, and we design them scientifically to produce a manageable level of exertion, okay? It's positive and reinforcing so that, um, and this is based, again, like I said, it's based on the science. So we looked at exercise physiology studies to find out what did people find enjoyable. And if you keep it short, you know, anything under about 10 minutes, and if you keep the level of intensity down, then you increase mood, you improve mood, you increase energy. Okay, so that's what I mean when I say scientifically de designed. We also worked with kinesiologists to make sure that the movements would minimize the risk of in injury, especially for people that are carrying a few extra pounds or haven't been moving around a lot. And at this point in time, we've implemented in thousands of workplaces and schools and materials have been purchased in probably 45 states and about 10, 10 countries. We have um, our studies of this concept are funded by the National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and a number of foundations like Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the California Endowment based here in LA. Um, so what, it, what are some of the other elements of these short breaks. Why, why do I think that this is um, a concept that could be workable for people? Well, for one thing, what's the number one reason teenage girls give for not wanting to participate in physical activity? Hair. Hair, makeup, don't want to go. Okay, anybody hear about the Surgeon General uh, making a comment about black women and hair being an obstacle to physical activity? Did anybody hear that coverage? Well, it actually happened, and of course there was a reporter who called, uh, he called me up, we were on vacation actually, saying, well, you know, what do you think about the Surgeon General talking about hair and black women? I mean, shouldn't she be focused on more important things? And I said, no, actually, I think there's good data to show that that's a problem, and I think it's important for the Surgeon General to focus on the number one causes of death and disease and disability in this country, of which physical activity, poor nutrition, tobacco, other substances, those all count for probably 80% of the preventable diseases in this country. So do I think she should be focusing on those? Yes. You know, because he was trying to stir up trouble. I knew what was up. Okay, so social support and desire for conformity. So, you know, most of us, we're social animals, and we do what other people do. Okay, so if other people are doing it, then mostly we're doing it. Okay, even though we say we're not influenced by others and we're not influenced by advertising, well, I can assure you that people wouldn't be paying 30% of their budgets for a lot of commercial products if we weren't being influenced by them. Um, and, and then the other thing is that fun element. Okay, so 
when we conceptualized activity breaks, and initially they were called the lift off or lift those buns off the couches and chairs because we had this whole social marketing campaign when I came to LA County called Fuel Up Lift Off LA. But um, really we, when um, a group of professional athletes called the Professional Athletes Council contacted me in 2006 to see, they, they brought in me and a, and a person from the CDC to see you know, what they could do to really help with this epidemic of childhood obesity. And so, you know, I, I brought the concept of, you know, doing these activity breaks. But in the course of produ producing the first DVD, we, we said, hmm, we need to come up with a little catchier name, something that communicates what we're talking about a little better. And that's where Instant Recess came from. And really, I'd written a poem, another poem, so you know, bear with me. I'm going to share, share with you one other that... Uh, kind of is really the whole concept behind Instant Recess, and it's another one that's in the book. It's called Recapturing Recess. Now I know y'all can remember the recess bell, the wave of exhilaration, the sigh of relief, the sheer release, the transformation of fidgeting into linear motion. Raise up your hands if you can remember all that pent-up energy exploding into air and space and wind and sunshine. And if you can recapture even a little of the joy of unbridled movement, then just maybe there's hope for the couch potatoes. Those of you too worn down even to fidget. You think you need rest and food, but you toss and turn in bed and meals don't really sit well. These bodies just weren't meant for so much sitting and standing and so little recess. Recess is the best branded part of the school day. How many people can honestly say that when they hear recess, there isn't some little positive thing that clicks off in their brain? Yeah, well, so. Um, now, I'm going to kind of skip along a little bit because um, before we go any further, I, I want to I share with you exactly what we're talking about here. I, I'd like you to experience a little bit of instant recess. Okay, well, just if you can play it from the beginning then. It's a Murphy's Law day. It, the machine wouldn't open my, my PowerPoint, so I had to kind of adjust a little. It didn't have exactly the one that I'd hoped to share with you. And now we can't get that playing. Okay. Okay, here we go. You guys ready? Okay. Everybody up. <laughs> so we shot this on an Indian reservation, Wolf Point, Fort Peck Reservation in Montana, just south of the Canadian border, in February of 2010. Three snowstorms to get there. Jamie is one of my doctoral students. And he's a choreographer. So a lot of us have this right and left brain thing going on.
very important move. By the way, you don't have to have rhythm. What little rhythm I have is mostly just practice. <laughs> Darlene tries to keep me away from our granddaughter because she might start dancing like me. By the way, this was shot at a community college that first. <laughs> that shot, that, that's at a community college in Wolf Point. Obviously, the others were in a high school in the tribal chambers.
All right, and we turn it. Give yourselves a hand. We don't have time to fight the whole thing. So I know our time's running a little short, so I figured I should show you the picture that Sherry was talking about. So it was a tremendous honor about a year and a half ago to be appointed to the board of directors of the Partnership for a Healthier America. Um, Jim Gavin is our uh, chair of our board of directors. I'm there in blue, and you can see the first lady in red. A couple of our board members didn't luck out so much. They got left out of the picture. <laughs> and I will tell you one salient factor that I was the only person in the room taller than the first lady because she had on heels like this and she's 5'11". <laughs> and the guys were not wearing as high a heel as I was with my little boots on. So, um, But at any rate, we have our first ever annual summit coming up at the end of this month, November 29th and 30th. And um, we are actually going to be shifting and doing a little bit more with physical activity. As you may know, there are four pillars of the first lady's campaign. Um, giving parents the information they need to make healthier food choices for their kids, addressing food deserts, addressing school foods, and physical activity. So we're going to flesh out that physical activity pillar a little bit more. And some organizations throughout the country have already started to do a little bit more than, uh, with that. Um, and I'm just going to skip to this slide. Um, the United Church of Christ which is the uh, denomination that the First Lady and President belong to, um, actually decided to adopt Instant Recess in support of the Let's Move campaign. And this was done entirely without any contact with me. So um, the woman who is there, um, uh, head of the Ministry of uh, uh, Faith and Justice, which houses the health ministry, uh, Barbara Baylor, has a master's degree in public health. And she you know, read the book and figured out exactly how to do it. And she had them during the Sunday worship services. This is one in Spring, Texas, North Houston, doing musical pews. They were also in her own church in Cleveland, which is the home of the United Church of Christ, doing the Jesus Shuffle. <laughs> and, and I want to tell you, if, if you want some encouragement that you have an idea, and that idea you know, can actually manifest. When I started this 12, 13 years ago, people said I was nuts to think that ever there would be activity going on during the Sunday worship service. But I, can, I have proof now to show that that's the case. And, and in fact, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the churches are finding that it helps keep people awake for the sermon, put more in the collection plate. More energy to volunteer for all of the activities, the wonderful work that churches are doing. This is, uh, this is the last slide I'm going to show, and this is from Keen. Um, this is uh, the, a company that makes uh, outdoor footwear. They called me up out of the blue about six months ago and said, Hey, Dr. Yancey, we're, we're citing some of your work in a campaign that we are launching called Recesses Back. We want to recess back in the workplace. And I'm like, that was music to my ears. So I said, of course, you know, I'd love to kind of figure out how we could work together. And this is the product of it. It was just uh, launched about three weeks ago. Um, and it's a toolkit based on those instant recess breaks and helping to identify tools that um, the human resources or risk management or wellness people can use to put it, to get it into the workplace. So we've case studies that 
will help to convince the CEOs, the C-suite, that this is a good thing on productivity and so forth. We actually have the calculator that you see on the left there. The calculator actually um, shows people how much of a return they can get on investment. So that they put in the number of employees, hourly wage, um, numbers of hours worked per week, and what type of industry, it'll spit out a return on investment and a one-year savings. And that return on investment actually runs between about $1.50 and $2 per dollar invested in instant recess. So um, I'm just going to um, put this slide up so that you can see the places that you can go to um, identify you know, re instant recess materials. You can stream most of our materials. We have about 40 or so now online. You can also register with my good colleague, Dr. Melissa Mil Glover at her company, Gramercy Research. And, um, and you can download a number of the ones that they produce free of charge. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And I'm going to stop there and ask if there are questions or comments. Repeat any questions? Okay. Questions? Yes, sir. Hello. Hi. Uh, What's your name? Roderick. Hi, Roderick. I was going to say, uh, I just like the idea of like working out. Not like going to a gym. I don't do that. Uh, I, do, like, I do little things like I'll walk upstairs instead of going up the escalator. I'll park in the back of a parking lot. And like people call me crazy because I'd rather walk to work than drive. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, you're way ahead of the game, Roderick. Way ahead of the game. What I would say is just think about whether maybe during one of those commercials, you know, you could get up and do a little dance around or something, you know, because it, I mean, sitting for more than an hour at a time does really shut down your whole metabolism. So, I mean, I'm not one for, you know, trying to, you know, guilt people into doing things, but I, I just want people to understand how dangerous sitting is in addition to not getting, you know, that, you know, 30 minutes sounds like you're getting more like an hour or more a day of moderate to vigorous physical activity. And please keep doing all that you're doing. But, you know, if you want to even go to the next level, you know, maybe stand up in the middle of that two-hour stretch. Don't, don't stop the two hours. Just stand up in the middle of it. Okay. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Sherry. Uh, it's difficult in both places for different reasons. I, I can't really say one is more difficult than another. Um, and, and I will leave these slides so that anybody who's interested, I guess you all probably have a way of posting them or something, but um, there are a number of slides that talk, for instance, about the Alliance for a Healthier Generation. So one of the ways that we've been able to get into schools is through other groups. So like we've worked with the LAUSD nurses, and they actually produced a poster back when, when I was with LA County, and then since that time have brought us into uh, train nurses, you know, to implement in schools. They've opened up to um, my doctoral student who just finished her dissertation on instant recess. Uh, Dr. Denise Woods found that instant recess breaks added about 1,900 steps to the kids' daily physical activity. 
And that's about 20% of what we would like them to get. I mean, if, if 10,000 is kind of a, a general goal, then you know, that's helpful. But the Alliance for a Healthier Generation was founded by the Clinton Foundation and uh, the American Heart Association. And they used instant recess, I guess, about five, six years ago as a part of creating their um, tiered system of incentives to get schools to adopt wellness policies. So we, we found out just recently that about 75% of the schools, they work with about 12,000 schools around the U.S., and about 75% do um, some kind of activity breaks every day. And we're just doing an online survey with them. One of my other doctoral students is kind of leading that up so that we can find out more about what materials they're using, you know, what's working, what's not, and, you know, how we can be helpful to them in, you know, getting an even higher percentage to adopt. But um, some people are doing it like, you know, adding a little bit of running before recess. Some people are doing it at the beginning of the day and getting all of the, you know, kids and, you know, teachers and administrators to do it together. But on the workplace side, um, that's really where we started. So I would say that in terms of my own direct efforts, I've worked much more with work sites. And so I see all of the challenges, but I can't say, I, I probably am a little bit better equipped to navigate them. And one of the challenges that has come up repeatedly is just this issue of cost. Okay, so what's it going to cost me? Why should I do it? And coming up with examples like um, LL Bean Plan in Maine, for instance, is one that I talk about. Um, I interviewed the wellness coordinator in my book, um, and she she actually said that they consider say, uh, activity breaks like the equivalent of safety glasses when you're welding. You know, why would you not give people eye protection? You know, you know that they're going to get injured if you don't give that to them. And in fact, that's the same case with having people sit for hours at a time. As a matter of fact, we're even working with a union in Washington, D.C. now to talk about this as a right or an entitlement to move. I think movement is an entitlement. I think people should feel as entitled as they do to their coffee breaks. You know, that's a pipe dream right now, I realize, but hey, got to have a pipe dream. You, if you don't dream big, you're never going to accomplish anything. So, yeah. Yes. Question is, if people don't move around during the day, um, don't move around enough to sweat during the day. Is that still considered, you know, being active? And, you know, sweating is really not a great gauge because if somebody's very fit, it's going to take a lot to make them sweat, okay? Um, also, sweating depends on the temperature. It depends on what clothing you have on. So um, most of the time we'll say that moderate intensity activity is accompanied by maybe just a little bit of a glow, you know, just a little bit of perspiration, and, and vigorous activity is accompanied by sweating. So you do not have to get vigorous activity to meet the guidelines, okay? Now, for people that are either trying to lose weight or trying to maintain a weight loss, then getting an hour a day is probably more like what it takes. So the half an hour a day is the preventive measure. You know, the treatment measure is probably much more than that. But, you know, I'm a preventive medicine specialist, so my focus is on the prevention angle of things. So, no, you do not have to sweat. Um, and... You know, there are times when I go to the gym, depending on how cool they have it there, I may do a half an hour, 35 minutes on the elliptical and never break a sweat. You know, it's just, it, again, it's all dependent upon a lot of other factors. It doesn't mean that I didn't work out vigorously in that case, but, you know, it just depends on a lot of factors. I have a lot of surface area, long, long arms, so. Yes. Um, 
I love that question. Do, do I find that herbal vitamins benefit health? Okay. There was just an article out in the Wall Street Journal last week that really captured, um, uh, I guess it was uh, an article that had been published in, in JAMA or the Annals of Internal Medicine, but that finally kind of um, put a little, you know, uh, period behind all of this about supplements. I mean, the medical community has been trying to find the magic bullet pill forever, you know, and over and over again, when they take something out, a supplement out from food, from whole food, and try to make it into something that will help prevent d disease, almost every time they find that not only does it not help prevent disease, but in some cases it can increase the risk of disease, like the beta carotene studies in lung cancer that actually increase lung cancer. And you can say, well, why would that happen? Well, because the, the human body is very, compl uh, very complex, and anybody who says everything as simple as energy in, in, energy out, doesn't know much about obesity, physical activity, and nutrition. I, I will say that definitively. It is not as simple as energy in, energy out. It depends on what the energy is that you're taking in and what kind of energy you're putting out and when and a whole lot of other factors. So by and large, I find that supplements are great for the people that have invested in those supplement companies, okay, and the CEOs and the others. Okay, that, that's who they really benefit. Now, there are some exceptions, and those exceptions are really based on people and their own challenges. So I'll tell you that one of the reasons I think that I'm so, you know, determined to get in my physical activity, I mean, really committed to it, is that um, in my own family history, I have a very bad problem with osteoarthritis. So, you know, I already have these little things forming at the ends of my fingers, the last joint called Heberden's nodes. And... Um, when I go to the orthopedist, if I go to a, an orthopod that I've never met before and they look at my x-rays, you know, they all, docs always look at your x-rays before they come in the room, and they come in and they see me and then they look around starting trying to find the patient because my x-rays look like I'm 75 years old, you know, and that's just the way it is, but I'm a lot more functional than as if I was 75. I am 54 today, so, you know, this is, thank you. And I came on my birthday because I thought this would be a great way to celebrate it, you know, because I really, really believe in Santa Monica College and in the community college system. So you all are helping me, making me feel really good about the celebration today. I have a question about the vitamin D. Even the healthiest person in the world always has a vitamin D deficiency. And along the lines of what you were talking about in terms of the supplemental vitamin D, that was my next question, you know, what's the causal relationship? Because you mentioned the Okay, well, vitamin D is, is, is one of those potential exceptions because there are a lot of people running around with vitamin D deficiencies. And vitamin D is, is um, okay, so when we talk about disparities, there are some disparities there. And African Americans tend to run lower levels of vitamin D. And part of that may be because of our extra melanin and the fact that we're shielded to some degree from the conversion um, of vitamin D that comes from the sun, okay? Now, whites with less um, melanin aren't shielded, maybe getting more, but then, you know, there are the higher rates of skin cancer. So, you know, it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. But 
Um, what I will say is that I think people, especially when they get to be middle-aged or older, need to talk to their docs about vitamin D, need to get their levels checked. And I, I actually take vitamin D as a part of a supplement with glucosamine and chondroitin, which helps with my arthritis. If I did not take glucosamine and chondroitin, and, you know, there are times when I get busy, I'm traveling, I forget that I've not taken it in a day or so, and I start walking around like that 75-year-old person that my joints look like. Um, so I actually take a supplement that has glucosamine, chondroitin, and vitamin D um, just to help with that. But again, it's, it's got to be individualized. I mean, people are going to have to educate themselves about what they're at risk for, what they have problems with, because there's no magic, there's no magic bullet, there's no magic pill. The other supplement that I personally take because of the challenges that I have with arthritis is um, SAMI methionine, and um, you know these uh, the com the combination you know I thought last summer I was going to be up for a knee replacement and the combination has got me now to where I'm about back uh, hoping to play a little tennis again you know basketball is kind of like a distant memory at this point but um, you know hey I don't have a lot of cartilage in my left knee um, so yes about probiotics Okay, um, most of the physicians that I, and, and let me just say, I don't practice clinical medicine anymore, so I'm a consumer when it comes to a lot of this medical treatment stuff like you all are. I mean, um, most of the physician colleagues that I have um, are in favor of people utilizing probiotics for digestive challenges. If people have, you know, like for me, I, I'm, I'm a little lactose intolerant, but if I, t if I eat yogurt two or three times a week that has active cultures, then I don't get the, you know, um, uh, unpleasant, you know, gas and some of those things that, that I would normally get. Now, I'm not very lactose intolerant. It's just a small, you know, uh, a small level, and it's kind of, um, it didn't happen until I was in my late 30s. People that are really lactose intolerant, and most of the world's population is really lactose intolerant. I mean, most of the world's population can't digest, you know, cow's milk after the age of two. So, and by the way, the, um, one of my colleagues is also in the audience, Dr. Joanne Leslie, who has a, a doctorate degree from in nutrition from Hopkins. So, if I misspeak, she can, you know, jump in there and, you know, help out a little bit. But. Um, uh, uh, I, I think most people feel that there can be benefits to probiotics. Um, I certainly find that there's been a benefit to me personally, but I think that, again, it's one of those things that people really need to check out because, you know, they can be very expensive too, and you may or may not get benefit. So, um, you know, I think that there are a lot of digestive issues that come from the fact that we don't get as, you know, um, natural of foods as we probably, you know, as our systems um, evolve to you know, utilize. Yes, sir.
Well, there's there's definitely a conspiracy against certain demographics. I mean, I you know that's why I'm the co-director of a Center for Health Equity because disparities are rampant in our society. Um, they're based on socioeconomic status. They're based on race, ethnicity. They're based on gender, based on sexual orientation. I mean, they're they're all over the place. They're based on region of the country. I mean, one of the things that's been really cool lately is that we have a group in Appalachia that's working on a an Appalachian uh, dance-based instant recess break. Um, we we have problems all over now, specifically as it relates to black kids who have some of the highest rates of obesity in the country. Um, in California, an African-American or Latino child has about a one in two chance of developing diabetes in their lifetimes versus one in four for white children. Now, I don't even think the one in four is anything to brag about, but one in two is just off the chain. It's, it's ridiculous. So um, we need to tighten down. I mean, the industry, you know, and the industry has been allowed to run rampant over recent administrations, but industry is going to have to be held to some standards. You know, they're not going to do it voluntarily. All this about voluntary guidance and voluntary guidelines and voluntary adherence is so much, you know, bunkum. So, I mean, we as a society need to get a grip and figure out that we're responsible for the health of the next generation. If we don't want them to have shorter life expectancies than we have, which is the way it's going right now. That's the direction it's going right now. That was the statistic that really caught the First Lady's attention, I can tell you, because she said that in that meeting that we talked about. Um, that and the fact that her youngest daughter, Shasha, was you know creeping up BMI-wise when they were in the Senate campaign race. So if we don't want this to happen, then we have to be vocal about what we want our society to be about. And I think we also need to be vocal about physical education, recess in schools, activity breaks in schools and in the workplace. I mean, these are things that should be an entitlement. Yes? I was just going to say, you, you all were talking about like the pills and the herbs and stuff. I've never been the type of person that takes pills or vitamins or like even if I had a headache, I don't take medicine for it. I don't like the idea because I know people say, you know, pharmacists make it, but I think that, you know, somebody's in the lab making it, so I don't know what's going into my body. Do you think there are certain things you should take or do you think it's best that I don't take it? I think that there are things that you should take. How old are you, young man? Yeah, well, when you get to be 54, you will find out that there are some things you're going to have to take, unfortunately. But ha hold off as long as you can. Yes, ma'am, in the back. Yes, I I'm sorry, sir. Okay, so the question is about um, the, the, the linkage, the association between childhood obesity and environments um, that are low resource, that people don't have the opportunity to um, have the access to fruits and vegetables and produce. You know, they call them food deserts. They're not really food deserts. They're just healthy food deserts because there's plenty of food there, although, you know, it's a questionable nutritional value. Um, 
I do not think instant recess alone is sufficient for anything. I think instant recess in conjunction with other strategies is important. I think the food side right now is getting a lot more attention than the physical activity side. And I think the two are equally important. So that's why I really spend a lot of time focusing on what we can do about physical activity. But the First Lady has identified the four pillars for very good reason. She listened to the public health community and she's been the most effective spokesperson we could ever imagine to really convey that to the community. So food deserts, you know, and for instance, the California Endowment has created a fund, $100 million, to establish, uh, to establish um, uh, places that uh, fresh produce and other healthy foods can be sold in low-income communities in the state of California. You know, so they're getting matching funds from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and others. But that's the whole purpose of that. And that was a part of a commitment to the First Lady's Let's Move campaign. As a matter of fact, the California Endowment, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, Kaiser Permanente's Community Benefit and a few others were the ones that created the Partnership for a Healthier America that I sit on to assist that that campaign, to assist the Let's Move campaign. Because actually, the Let's Move campaign operates with like three staff members. I, I was just in Washington last week and we met with Sam Cass. Do you all know who I'm talking about? He was the bald-headed guy in the picture. He's the chef that kind of got this started. He was their chef. Um, and um, Another uh, person that's worked a lot on the, uh, on the campaign is Shell Wong. She's an intern, quote unquote, but she's really a, you know, 40-something year old associate professor at University of Colorado School of Medicine. So, you know, those two people work full time on the campaign. There are a couple of other people who work on it partially, but the campaign itself is really focused around media around the First Lady, and she's been very effective at le leveraging that. But these foundations started the partnership so that we could help the First Lady really get this done. How do we take it to scale? How do we start new norms? And how do we accelerate what's working in communities to address the entire problem of childhood obesity? Um, one more question. Um, there are devices called pedometers and accelerometers. You can get them from sporting goods stores. Um, Keen, the group that I've been working with, I know they're going to be selling them on their website uh, from GeoPulse that actually monitor. This is an accelerometer. This not only monitors your steps, but also how many minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity activity you get. Both are important. It's important just to move around a lot. I try to get 10,000 steps a day, but it's also important to get 30 minutes or more of moderate to vigorous physical activity. I just wanted to mention um, gardens, community gardens, uh, as, uh, again, they're not the answer to everything, but they so nicely combine three things. They're a way of producing healthy food, and kids are a lot more likely to eat things that they wouldn't eat from the grocery store if they had to find. Uh, Get some exercise and 
So uh, community gardens is what Dr. Leslie was just mentioning as another way to um, address the economic uh, situation that a lot of people find themselves in, not, not enough income to really afford the, the best food choices, um, getting activity, physical activity, and having access to the, the fresh produce that we want. So do, do we have time for one more young lady's question? <laughs> if it's quick, as we're heading out the door. Um, I, I can't actually I can't actually answer the question of uh, of the campaign working with it. What I can say is that it's really a three pronged effort. The Let's Move campaign is really working more with the private sector. The the White House Childhood Obesity Task Force is the part that's really charged by the president with making these things happen, like what you're talking about, making sure that kids get adequate nutrition classes in school adequate nutrition in the school, foods in the school, and so forth. So that's Arnie Duncan, the Secretary of Education, Ken Salazar with the Department of the Interior, a lot of other people who are working on that side of things. Yeah, so thank you very much. Thank you.